It's amusing. It's amusing to see church clutter produce guilt and hope. You know, because when we started the remodel, we had to go in there, we had to move things into the storage containers there. We've had uh, cleaning bees here, where we go to the attics, we go to cabinets, and we go there to get stuff out, to throw stuff away. And it's interesting because when we're moving things out of the remodeling uh, of that building, you go to some cabinets that you haven't opened ever. And you see chairs that were hidden in the corner because they were covered with stuff. And people are asking, like, so where does this go? Does this go in the storage container? And you would tell them, oh, no, that goes in the trash. Immediately, guilt settles in. Oh, not the chair. People sit on that. Somebody finds these bins with, with magazines, with uh, little uh, books or uh, papers. They're like... What do we do with these? Where does this go? They're like, well, you throw it away. <gasps> Why? It has words in it. <laughs> you find things that have been stored there, have been forgotten, unused for years, and then when it comes time to throw it away, you feel guilty. Then immediately hope creeps in. No, those chairs that are from the 1980s are going to the trash. <gasps> no, guilt, oh no. Hope comes in. They say, someone could use these. <laughs> Throw those papers, those magazines away. Oh, some ministry could use that. And the funny thing is, that someone never seems to have an actual name or contact. <laughs> so things continue to be stored and take up space in our building. When you've moved out of your homes, whether you've moved out of your dorms, you realize you have a lot of stuff, more than you need. Amen. And you realize you have a lot of junk, a lot of trash. You discover, you're like, oh, I still have this? <coughs> it's still there? I can't believe it's still in my house. It takes up so much space that it becomes overwhelming at times. You can't go, you can't park your car in the garage. There's so much stuff. It gets overwhelming. You feel claustrophobic. You have things that take up space that are near and dear to you, but they don't benefit you the way they used to. They don't have that use anymore. And the flip side to st taking up all that space is there's less space for things that you could actually use. Things that are beneficial. Maybe things that, are, will, that will be pleasant to look at. I mean, that is so much how our relationship with Jesus could be. That is so much like the wrestling that goes on in our walk with God. Because we have so many things in our life that, takes, that take up space, that overwhelm us. You know that past mistake, those past experiences that continue to loom over us? It's overwhelming. We focus on former convictions, former assumptions that we know are no longer true, but we focus on those instead of the things that we've discovered to be true and beautiful. Those things in life take up so much space that it actually leaves less space for Jesus to work, less space for his grace and his love to transform us and produce something good. And that's what we're going to see here in Philippians chapter 3. We're 
Because we're going to cover the second half of chapter 3. Last week, we saw how Paul spent the first half of chapter 3 emphasizing that Jesus was of supreme importance to Paul. In verse 10, he says, I want to know Christ. Yes, I want to know the power of the resurrection. I want to know Christ fully. I want to know what a never-ending, what never-ending fellowship with Jesus looks like. I want to know what it's like to have absolute allegiance to Jesus. I want to know what that's like. See, Paul has been talking about here in Philippians about the ultimate goal being knowing Jesus. Yes, there's mention of the resurrection. Yes, there's mention of heaven. But it's as a side note because the ultimate goal for Paul was knowing Christ. I want to know Christ fully. And then we get to the second half of chapter 3 in verse 12. Paul writes, Not that I have already obtained all of this or have already arrived at my goal, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it. See, three times in two verses, Paul emphasizing, I am not perfect. I have not arrived. I am not where I could be. Yes, I know I've just spent so much time talking about the supremacy of Jesus in my life. How I want to know Christ fully. How I want to experience the power of his resurrection. I know I just said that, but I am not perfect. I know I just spent time telling you that if there's one person that could claim to be perfect, it was me because I was faultless when it came to observing the law. I just explained to you that I was so devoted to my faith that I used to persecute those who opposed my faith. I know I just spent time telling you all those things, but I'm telling you, I am not perfect. I am not the person I can be in Jesus, at least not yet. I mean, he uses buzzwords for, that, for those audiences. Buzzwords where, uh, depending on your version, he's saying, I have not obtained this or I have not achieved this. I haven't reached my goal. I'm not yet perfect. Those are buzzwords for people in that community. Because you had Jews who believed that in order to be perfect, you had to be circumcised and observe the law. You could be perfect here and now. He's using buzzwords for them. You had Gnostics who were saying, there's something we have that we've obtained, we've achieved, this knowledge, we have it, and we are perfect. We have it, perfection here and now, before and even without the need for a resurrection. Paul is really getting at people who think they are perfect here and now. Paul is telling them that perfection is possible, but only because of Jesus, and we'll experience that come resurrection time. I mean, are we humble enough to acknowledge that we haven't arrived? I mean, individually, like, are you able to look in your own hearts and acknowledge that I have not arrived? As a faith, as our church, we have not arrived to a full understanding of Jesus. Are we humble enough to acknowledge that? See, true Christian maturity acknowledges, in fact, embraces the reality that we have so much more to go. That we haven't arrived. That we're not perfect. There's more work to do. 
individually, and as a community. But Paul continues, after mentioning three times in two verses that he's not perfect, he continues and says, but one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining towards what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. Just one thing, Paul says. I won't let anything get in the way of me knowing Jesus better. Nothing to clutter up my relationship with Jesus. Nothing that will prevent the love and grace of Jesus to transform me into the person that I'm meant to be in Jesus. I mean, he was brave enough to leave it all behind if it meant knowing Jesus better. The church I grew up in, in Las Vegas, stop judging, by the way. (laughs) There are churches in Vegas? Is what I heard all the time. What? Um, I'm recovering. So, the church I grew up in, a wonderful church, uh, and it was uh, the church that you would call a seeker-sensitive church. Lots of churches are like that. It's a familiar uh, term uh, that, we, that we know. And basically, a seeker-sensitive church ministry is one that is intentional about connecting with those who are searching for a relationship with Jesus that they've probably never had before. Intentional about connecting with people who've never been to church or who took the chance to attend church even though they were traumatized by church in the past. Intentional about connecting with those people who weren't baptized into our church or any church. Intentional. Basically, we acknowledge that not everybody in our pews is Adventist. We acknowledge that not everybody in our pews is Christian or a regular churchgoer. And I love that experience. I remember the mission statement. I was 12 when I went to that church, and I remember the mission statement to transform the unchurched into mature disciples of Jesus Christ. I remember that. And see, seekers, being seeker-sensitive or seekers, is a common term used to describe groups of people who are new to the church thing, who are new to the get-to-know-God-better thing. But what's interesting is that regular churchgoers aren't commonly known and referred to as seekers. Why aren't seventh-generation Seventh-day Adventists who are related to Adventists commonly referred to as seekers? Why aren't those who were baptized years ago commonly referred to as seekers? Why aren't those who lead out programs in our church, why aren't those on the pastoral staff, why aren't we commonly referred to as seekers? Is it because we're susceptible to thinking that we already know all we need to know about Jesus? Because after all, we have 28 statements of fundamental beliefs. That's enough, isn't it? And if it's not, we'll wait five years to see what we vote on. (laughs) Or is it because we think we're already the people we could be in Jesus? Because we're already baptized. Because we attend church regularly, we're already the people God wants us to be. And we're not commonly referred to as seekers because we've misunderstood our place in powerful parables that Jesus said. The parables of the lost sheep, the parables of the prodigal son, where we confuse and we think those outside of the church walls are the lost sheep and the ones inside of the walls are the 99. 
And the prodigal son is the one that's outside of the church walls, not the one in the pews. We forget that the whole reason Jesus started sharing those parables is to describe how God is with sinners, and that includes the people outside of the walls and inside of the walls of the church. It's unfortunate that those who are regular churchgoers aren't commonly referred to as seekers. We hold on to things that Paul did not want to get in the way of his relationship with Jesus, thinking he already arrived, thinking he had it all figured out. He didn't want those things to get in the way. He didn't want the good or the bad in his life to get in the way. That's why he wasn't determined to preserve his heritage and culture. That's why he wasn't focusing on his past mistakes. He said, I'm forgetting all of that. I'm leaving that behind. I mean, are we brave enough to not let anything get in the way of us knowing Jesus better? Are we brave enough to become the people that God has called us to be in Jesus? Paul continues a couple of verses later, and he uses some strong words to describe groups of people. Verse 18, For as I have often told you before and now tell you again, even with tears, many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their destiny is destruction, their God is their stomach, and their glory is in their shame. Their mind is set on earthly things. Again, even with tears, he's saying, Again, I've, I've written to you before. I've written to the church in Corinth before. I mean, again, with tears. The word that he used for tears, it's one, it, it, exp- it expresses an audible grief, an audible lament. It's not just a little tear. It's all dramatic. It's one of frustration and heartbreak. That he has to continue repeating this, that there are people who live as enemies of the cross, But the ones who live as enemies of the cross may not be the types of people we typically would think of. We would think it's probably like the powers like Rome, because after all, Paul was sitting in prison because he was proclaiming the gospel. Perhaps those living as enemies of the cross are powers like Rome who are persecuting. Or maybe it's the ones living as enemies of the cross are those who are performing evil acts that are hurting others, that are using others. But if you take into consideration everything Paul's been writing about in Philippians, you realize that the ones he's referring to are those who deny that the cross is enough. That it is those who deny the abundance that the cross offers everyone. See, we could live as enemies of the cross when we are consumed with spiritual pride That fools us into thinking that there's something we could do to improve what Jesus has already done for us. We live as enemies of the cross when we rely on ourselves, our works, instead of making ourselves completely available to the righteousness of God. When instead of reaching for the prize, we turn it into a competition. A competition for a prize that is actually offered to everyone. Or maybe we live as enemies of the cross because we are discouraged, because we're constantly comparing ourselves to others. 
and, and forgetting that the only person who was perfect was Jesus? Are we living as enemies of the cross because we have difficulty embracing the generosity of grace? That even though we've made terrible mistakes in the past, we don't have to become more forgivable and more lovable before God. That's just who God is. Because when you take a look at the cross, we see a vulnerable God. When you see Jesus there, he is wounded by violence. It was cruel. He was filthy. Exposed. He was a vulnerable God, wounded by violence, but he was also a vulnerable God because he showed us the kind of God he is, who he really is. The cross shows us that God's compassion is greater than our evil ways. That hope shines even in the darkest places, even on a cross. That God's forgiving love is greater than our guilt from our past mistakes. The cross shows us that we don't have to experience separation from our Creator. The cross is enough. There's abundance found at the foot of the cross. Paul has spent time emphasizing, I am not perfect. I have not arrived. And that's why I'm letting go. That's why I'm not going to let anything get in the way. Not even the good things. Not even the bad. Nadia Weber captured this very well. She says, Our weakness, our brokenness, is fertile ground for a forgiving God. To do something new, to do something beautiful. So don't ever think that all you have to offer are your gifts. She's describing the undeniable abundance of the cross. Challenging us that we have to be brave enough to leave everything behind. Our gifts, our accomplishments, and even our weaknesses. We need to make space for Jesus rather than to take up space with things that produce guilt rather than hope. We need to get rid of things in our life. And if we've held on to something for far too long, it's time to let it go because the past is the past. If we believe we could improve what Jesus has done for us, we need to let that go. We need to throw that out. And there's probably some things in our life that we don't have to throw out. But at the very least, we have to move it out of the way. Move it to the side. Because if something is blocking us from getting to where God wants us to be, we need to move it, even if we don't throw it away. If there's a door that God wants us to walk through, we have to move whatever is in the way of that door. We have to let go of our strengths, our gifts. We have to embrace the weaknesses that is fertile ground for a forgiving God. That reminds us every day when we look at the cross that it is enough for whatever we've done. Let's pray. God, it is so good to be able to approach you as people who are imperfect. And we get to do that because we know we're approaching a perfect God who has demonstrated perfect love for all his children. 
God, I pray that any one of us who are holding on to past experiences, holding on to misconceptions of what perfection looks like, uh, God, I just want us to embrace what you have to offer us in, in the relationship we have with you. May we be transformed by that loving and forgiving and compassionate Jesus that we see on the cross. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. getting in the way of us experiencing the power of God's love in our life. Amen.